On the Empire Podcast this week, we have a hat-trick of interviews for your delectation and enjoyment. 1-0! It's Lee Child, creator of Jack Reacher and massive Aston Villa fan. And it's the Equalizer! <laughs> or more accurately, thanks, Phil. Or more accurately, the director of the Equalizer, Mr. Antoine Fuqua. And last but not least, ghosting past Mamadou Sako and heading in a late winner at the near post because nobody was marking her is the gone girl herself, Rosamund Pike. All that, and yet somehow there's even more movie news and nonsense to come on the only movie podcast that will never forget where it was when Jason Orange quit Take That. A moment of silence for Jason Orange. Yeah. Where were you when Jason Orange quit Take That? I'm Asleep, not giving a shit. Mm-hmm. That's largely where I was and exactly what I was doing. Poor Jason Orange. First they take Orange Wednesdays from us, now they take Jason Orange from us. Wow, can our oranges be far behind? <laughs> Absolutely not. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Emperor Podcast. I'm joined this week by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. That's just for you, James Ward, who requested the return of that little description uh, those two colleagues are the Robbie Williams of our gang and by that I mean she's cheeky fun loving and has a personal fortune of over 90 million pounds it's Helen O'Hara <laughs> I don't really of course you do you work for Empire we're loaded uh, hey I'm, I'm, I'm confused uh Three colleagues of uh, two colleagues of such lethal coming. No, no, no. Oh well, hello. It's a different podcast. I'm confused. Uh, two colleagues of such lethal cunning. That it just stops in the film. It stops. Oh, Connery says three challenges of such lethal cunning, and then he just stops. It doesn't make much sense. Such, of such lethal cunning. It upsets me. I shot that he remembered my Charlemagne. Uh, anyway, let's welcome the Gary Barlow of our pod, and by that, of course, I mean he's a housewife's choice. He's He's well-groomed, he's well-turned out, he's massively into Czech expressionism. It's our art house guru, Phil DeSimley, how are you? Oh, good, thanks, Chris. Do you ever get together with Gaz Barlow and talk about art house movies? I'm sure he's massively into it. No. No? I haven't for a while, no, I used to. Oh, I love the three colours blue trilogy. It's brilliant. Yeah, he would love blue, the big <laughs> Tory. Yeah, but he's also a uh, he's also a Liverpool fan, so he might, he might be drawn to the red... Mm, okay. All right, you've been sending questions in via Facebook, via Twitter. We got a question from Facebook this week, which I'm very, very excited about. It's a long one, but yeah, we'll get there in a second. Uh, anyway, at Ward underscore 17, the same James Ward who requested the return of such lethal cunning, asks, what's your favourite movie hat or similar headwear? <laughs> well, that is the big important question that I think we've been remiss in not covering so far. 130 episodes in, I'm actually astonished we haven't got to this one. Yes, but, yeah. it's such a tough question, isn't it? Because we all have, um, when you come right down to it, quite strong opinions on hats. I mean, probably the correct answer is just Indiana Jones fedora, which is pretty hard to beat in terms of its iconography. I adore the fedora. Who doesn't? Um, I would also put in a word for the fruit hat in Copacabana, which I think has done more to spark fashion trends mm. than most movie hats. Are there any oranges on that fruit hat? No, but... Col- but yeah, Chris, see? No, see? No, no, but Chris, oranges are not the only fruit. That's are they? true. So yeah. there's other fruit. There's a um, huge pineapple. The uh, the Indie Fedora is, I think, number one for me. Uh, do you know that there was rumours a few years ago of this fourth Indiana Jones film, mm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Yeah, I, heard I, had, I had this weird dream it, yeah. where I was watching it and at the end of the movie... Uh, Indy's fedora blows off his head mm-hmm. and it, it drops on the, on the ground and uh, <laughs> it was a weird dream Shia LaBeouf was playing Indiana Jones' <laughs> so son so weird I know and he goes to pick it up and as one the entire cinema yells don't you fucking touch that hat you don't deserve to touch that hat yeah and then uh, Indy picks it, up, picks it off him and puts it back in his head it's a weird dream very vivid 
Mm. And then you were dragged out of the cinema. But surprisingly... (laughs) (laughs) I threw my shoe at the cinema. Surprisingly believable dream, that, yeah. I know, weird. That is a weird one. I've got one that's actually not very helpful at all because it's not in movies, but... um, What? (laughs) (laughs) Shall I go now? Frank. Uh, Go on. Frank, uh, uh, Judah Friedlander from 30 Rock, he always sports a great baseball cap. Yeah. With a variety of messages on it. A variety of alternative careers. I love 30 Rock, but that character... Oh God! Don't even get me started. Uh, that's the only I thing like that Judah. Hats, that's though. the only thing that that justifies that character's existence. His in hats. The show. His hats, which is something that Judah Friedlander does. In it's real his life. thing, right? Yeah, yeah he did thing. it before Thirty Rock, didn't yeah. he? Every 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 sort of different one for different in different languages, depending on where he was doing his stand up. Yeah. But um, so every episode, yeah. Frank, the the writer on the show, who somehow was in the credit sequence, despite the fact that he was barely in every episode, uh, or barely in uh, any of the episodes, because mm. he was a rubbish character. His his shtick is that he wears a different baseball cap with a different hilarious mm. slogan on it every week mm. <laughs> what a, didn't what a he have a he had an affair <laughs> with Susan Sarandon in the show didn't he that just made no sense did he uh, when he was a, a kid she'd been his teacher and seduced him or something am I that's making right. this up yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's that was one of the few right. decent yeah. Frank episodes so. yeah that was quite yeah. good um, I would also put in a good word for a couple more hats um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's quite fun I think to put dead animals on your head in movies I don't recommend it in real life but the bear hat in True Grit uh, yeah. is, is impressive. And the lion hat, of course, in Hercules recently. Do we call it a hat? It's more of a full body cape. I don't know. For iconic lady hats, I would <laughs> point out uh, Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday, who wears a fabulous hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Andy McDowell in Four Weddings, the gigantic satellite dish hat. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's necessarily good, but it does have a certain magic about it. Love the uh, the sombreros, the the ah. lovely uh, embroidered sombreros that three, three amigos, amigos wear, yeah. uh, which we had to track down whenever we uh, reunited them a couple of years ago. And it was, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Martin Short's nephew had the original hats and brought at least one or maybe two of them along to the shoot, which was which was great. And he actually put the original hats on. That was. That was a nice little touch. I wasn't there. I'm, I'm, this is like a third person <laughs> uh, recounting of the story. And you talk about hats. You, uh, you mentioned True Grit. I did. Which, which Nick uh, asked us to mention as well. Uh, Johnny Depp in um, Dead Lone Man. Ranger. Lone Ranger. There's the, uh, the uh, you know, talking about the Miller's Crossing and, and uh, the Coen brothers. The hat, of course. I think it's a Hamburg in, mm. in Miller's Crossing, mm. which plays such a huge part. Every film noir had great hats. Frank Nitti in The Untouchables. Homburg, was it? I, I don't. I don't know my hats. I'll be honest. No, I know fedora. Freddy Krueger wears a fedora as well, mm. which sure. is a really interesting choice. And uh, where does a Panama come into it? Like, it's really confusing. And what about the Adjustment Bureau? Who could forget? Oh, those were great. You'd hats. forgotten. No, I like that. That was movie. a plot device, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, you had to wear the hat the and go through a, a door to go through the door, like Mr. Ben. Oh, love it. Mm. Uh, Hugh Jackman's top hat in The Prestige actually plays part of the plot. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Lauren Hardy, Buller hats. Blues Brothers, yeah. they wear hats. They do. Who else wears hats? I mean, anything where Timothy Oliphant wears a cowboy hat, I'm pretty on board with. Yeah. Um, cowboy hats in general are pretty good. Clint Eastwood, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Kurt Russell in The Thing, Creedy wears a big cowboy hat. He does. Yeah. Oh, and and uh, Marge Gunderson with the uh, the sort of warm and woolly police hat. Welcome to Hat Talk, <laughs> your weekly guide to hats. Do you wear hats in real life? Do you wear a hat? I look great in hats. Yeah. It's one of the very few items of clothing that doesn't look horrible on me. See, that's the point where everyone's meant to go, no, Helen, no, you look no, great. I didn't expect no, it. What are you talking about? Really yeah, what? <laughs> you look great. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, hats. I don't know. I don't know. We know someone who wears a hat all the time, Kim Newman. 
Yes. Who wears it and pulls it off. He wears it um, with panache. He does. He, he does wear it with panache. Phil, you, you strike me as a sort of well-dressed, well-turned out. Not today, obviously. You let yourself go a bit. But, um, you know, do you wear a hat in, in your everyday life? Um, Would you wear a hat? I did wear a hat when I went to um, Bolivia a long time ago. And I bought a hat and I came back and I wore it at the airport mm. in a poncho. <laughs> and I think I had a pony and, and my parents conspicuously pretended they didn't know who I was so that was probably the last time I've worn an actual hat but people don't wear don't don't really wear hats these days do they so no they don't you would look like you're making a statement straight away There's which a in Kim's case you can carry off but in yeah. mine you probably couldn't it does feel weird I mean I do kind of I wouldn't want to go back to the 60s because they wouldn't have internet uh, or you know heat and things like that but you know not the magazine the actual the thing that makes you hot um, they didn't have it in the 60s I checked huh. but yeah it'd be great to go back because everyone wore a suit and was really dapper and had hats and you could, you, you could look like Don Draper and get away with it and that, that'd be cool you could look like Don Draper and get away with it yeah but if you walked into the Empire office wearing like a 60s style suit and a hat people would immediately go when's a job interview <laughs> or who's died or it, you know, are you going to a job interview to kill someone? And you know, it's 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 kind of those those things. It's, it's, I, I mourn the loss of that period. Hmm. Anyway, enough hat chat. I think so. We put the hat More in chat. Than. If you have any movie hats we've missed, again, this is all for top of our heads. So uh, do send them in to us via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. As some people have, they responded to last week's uh, topic, big topic, which was what are favourite movie slaps. There's still one I can't get in my head. I still can't quite figure out what it was. It was uh, it's someone it's a lady slaps a man and then she immediately kisses him like she's really distraught and she's crying she goes ah, you son of a bitch and slaps him and then she goes ah, and they start kissing maybe it was one of my private movies like that one of your uh, dreams yeah, again it might have been who knows uh, anyway so uh, at T Ajayi uh, said Kurt Russell in Tombstone you gonna say something or are you gonna stand there and bleed it's a man slap with added glove Ooh, good slap Anything that has Kurt Russell in it is good for us. Uh, Nathan Farrell at Nelly0777 says, Another good slap is in Con Air. Nick Cage slapping, I believe his name is Renelay Santiago. It's true, Nick Cage goes through the, the plane at the end. He goes mm-hmm. on this rampage through the plane. And he's f- punching people and kicking him out of his way. And then he gets to the film's most dubious character, which is the the, yes. the, the drag queen who's only there for comic relief. And then he slaps him out of the way rather than... Rather because than he's not manly him. enough to take a punch, so yeah. it's a little dubious. But I, I'm uh, not sure that would yeah. feature on my top list of it's movies. Not on my slaps, top I'll list be either. No, uh, best movie slap: Empire Magazine, Bogey, and Maltese Falcon. When you're slapped, you'll take it and you'll like it. That was Bogey. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, you see, when you're slapped, you'll take it and you'll like it. Bogey uh, obviously leads me to thought. Do you remember Casablanca when he talked to Peter Laurie? That was fun, wasn't it? I don't even good. think about um, it. <laughs> uh, and one I cannot believe that we missed out. Uh, is in Chinatown. Oh. And many, many people were uh, pointing that one out to us, um, which is the, the great moment where you know Jack Nicholson keeps slapping Faye Dunaway. He's looking for the truth. Spoiler, put your spoiler helmet on. Uh, and she goes, she's my sister. <laughs> slap. She's my daughter. Slap. She's my sister. Slap. She's my daughter. Because the horrible truth is revealed. So, yeah. So we missed those out. If you think we've missed out any cracking movie hats, then do send them in. And we'll read them out in the show next week. Last question now from Andrew Young via email, who uh, asks, across all three films, which do you think is the best performance in a Godfather film? Three films? <laughs> <laughs> well, have you had that strange recurring dream? I've had, I've had a strange as well. dream as well. 
There was a fourth <laughs> one with Shia LaBeouf as the next generation of Corleone. What, do you know how many people were nominated? For, I didn't really realise quite how many people have been nominated for Oscars for acting roles in the Godfather trilogy. Andy Garcia in the last one. Mm-hmm. But one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So eight different actors. Which ones? Um, Brando, Jimmy Kahn, Al Pacino twice, Robert Duval, Robert De Niro, Lee Strasberg, mm-hmm. Talia Shire, and Michael Gazzo. And then, of course, Andy Garcia. Mm-hmm. Um, so only Andy Garcia was nominated from Godfather 3? Yes, from Godfather 3. Or it's everyone was nominated from Godfather 1 Every two. single person yeah. in both <laughs> those movies. Um, apart from John Cazale, which is... Yeah, surprising to me because I think he's one of the standouts, if not the standout. Some of his scenes with um, Pacino are, well, that one particular scene where he disowns him is absolutely magnetic acting from both of them. Um, so yeah, him. Yeah, he, he was nominated. Yeah, nominated for one this Golden is, Globe. This is an amazing thing. Uh, Phil's led us down a little rabbit hole here. John Casale, five films, all of them greats. One of the one of the truly great actors was nominated for just one major award in his life, a Golden Globe at that, uh, for Best Supporting Actor for Dog Day Afternoon. Otherwise, he was completely overlooked for both Godfathers, for The Deer Hunter. That's insane. It, it is it? a bit insane. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really Hashtag is. Hashtag justice for Casale has uh, started right here. Uh, John, not not Joe, but yeah, but that's. Wow, that's weird. That is so weird. I'm angry now. I'm very angry. Uh, yeah, he's amazing in the Godfather movies. Absolutely amazing. But the best performance, that's the question, the best performance I, I in mean, all three Godfather films. Surely it has to be Pacino just because he has the most developed and the most complete arc of any character and, and you know, he travels furthest mm-hmm. of all of them, not necessarily, literally, geographically Although speaking. Although we should do a Michael Corleone uh, Air Miles map. That sure would, we should. That would absolutely. be fun. But, you know, he's 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 the one who, who changes most completely and and whose, you know, uh, evolution is chronicled throughout. So, I don't know. It's pretty obvious, but that would be my choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, do you go for that because he has the luxury of three films in which to carve out the character? Or do you go for the the the, 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 the flame steamers. of Jimmy Khan who burns so brightly and then gets snuffed out so memorably <laughs> you know who just owns that film for every moment that he's alive in The Godfather and then when he's not alive the film actually takes a noticeable dip in, in, in oh my goodness you just criticised something about The Godfather yes I did <gasps> yes I bloody well did yeah alright got a problem with that yep <laughs> you got a problem with that the Italian mob oh shit um yeah, it does. It does. It dips for about for about thirty one seconds, admittedly, but it takes a noticeable dip, uh, and then the Michael story comes to the, the the foreground again, and everything's okay. But he is so energetic and so full of life in that film. I think there's a big loss when he goes. I love uh, Duval as Tom Hagen in both films. I think yeah. It was, yeah, he's good. I think one of the great losses to The Godfather Three was the fact he didn't come back. Mm. Uh, George Hamilton is not a good replacement. I agree with that. He's very sort of he's an unobtrusive presence, but absolutely underpins everything that's going on around him. Mm. And him and and he Duval and Diane Keaton are the two kind of outsiders, aren't they? They have to portray a sense of sort of otherness within this within this. Mafia world. Um, one of my favourite sort of sub stories is Lee Strasberg, yes. who of course created the method, and then like like your teacher just turning up to play to play to join in the five aside on the playground, sort of turns up and wins an Oscar. Sorry, an Oscar nomination for Hyman Roth. Yeah, he's amazing as Hyman Roth as well. Phil, do you agree with Pacino? Yeah, Pacino's the one. 
Not Brando? Pacino. Pacino. Okay, thanks for your questions. As ever, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Uh, you use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it. Please Facebook us as well, as Benjamin Stevenson Hall did this week. Uh, we're on Facebook as, you'll never guess, Empire Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, time now for the first of our three. Count them three. Sorry, Ali. Uh, interviews this week. We have authors in the pod every now and again, from Max Brooks to George R.R. R. Martin. And when we heard Lee Child, the British author who created the mighty Jack Reacher, was in town to promote the 19th Reacher novel, Personal, we, and when I say we, I mean I, jumped at the chance to have him in the pod booth and crossed our fingers in hope that, unlike his creation, he wouldn't say nothing. And he didn't. As you'll, as you'll find out. Uh, Lee, or should I say Jim Grant, was talking to James Dyer and myself, a.k.a. The Office's Reacher Fanatics. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Lee Child, the man who created Jack Reacher. How are you, sir? Very well, thanks. Great to be here. Excellent. Now, I called you Lee Child, but of course your real name is Jim Grant. Uh, I'm interested to know, how many people in your life actually call you Jim Grant? Uh... No, nobody calls me those names two together. I mean, I've got my uh, some friends and my wife call me Jim. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose if the bank writes to me or, <laughs> or the uh, IRS actually would would call me Mr. Grant. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's outnumbered millions to one by the people who call me Lee Child. Uh, at what point did it start becoming weird that people are like uh, James and myself would meet you and say, nice to meet you, Lee? The, it's not weird at all. I mean, I've always had a, a very ambivalent relationship to names. You know, mm -hmm. my so-called real name mm -hmm. was given to me by two people that I didn't know at the time. <laughs> and as I grew to know them, I didn't like them very much. So how is that my name any more than one <laughs> I, I would give myself? So if you had to, so Lee Child was obviously your choice. But if mm. you had, to, say, for example, you had to change it again. Well, I've actually, you know, I was in showbiz all my life in various ways and, and for a long time contracted to uh, one particular television company. So mm -hmm. if I wanted to work anywhere else, then I would have to use a different name. And I think altogether I've probably worked under uh, at least five, if not six names. Tony Jackson was my name for a while. Richard Strange was a name <laughs> for a while. Um, so, yeah, if you pour over sort of vague, you know, credits on various old DVDs <laughs> or uh, theater programs, you find these names and that was me. And are all these people essentially the same you? Or do you change yourself to fit each name? That's a great question, because I think we change anyway. As we get older and we develop, uh, we do change a little bit. And in a way, yeah, you know, each name represents a, a part of the progression. So um, I would say they're not quite the same person. Okay, intriguing. But, uh, but Jack Reacher isn't going to change. No, and that's one of the things that I think is important about a series. You know, why do people like a series? They like a series partly because it's familiar, comfortable. They kind of know what they're getting to a certain extent. And so the classic kind of English literature BA approach is to say, yeah, the character's got to change. It's got to learn, got to grow, got to go on a journey. There's got to be an arc. And uh, I'm completely against that. I mean, my, my, all my effort goes into making them stay the same. Mm -hmm. Because that's what, I think that's what people expect. And, of course, he can't quite stay the same because I'm changing. So he's mm. going to change a little bit, but it, that's inadvertent. There's been some concessions over the last few books to Reacher's age. He's getting older. He had his nose broken for the first time mm -hmm. in his life just recently. Uh, so how much of that, uh, how much of his, his aging in real time are you incorporating into the books? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's that fine balance between uh, fantasy and reality. You know, people expect books to be 
uh, reality-based, you know, especially a thriller like this. But on the other hand, what they're really responding to is the mythic proportion of the characters. So you've got to have a fine balance. And in some ways, I do make concessions to reality. Like after 9-11, it became harder to go around the world without ID mm-hmm. and, uh, and banking was difficult. So I did make a concession there. He now has an expired passport. Mm-hmm. Although in, um, in this book, he gets a real passport. Yes. And uh, he has an ATM card, which I didn't really want to do, but I just thought, you know, you've got to at least acknowledge reality in some (laughs) way. And um, the same thing with the age, you know, essentially a mythic character is frozen in time, but because of the the realism required, you've got to sort of move it forward a little bit. So, and I'm based on my own life. And actually, I felt pretty good up until, um, you know, mid 50s. There wasn't really much difference (laughs) for me. But then, you know, since mid 50s, it's been like falling off a total cliff. Uh, so we've got to get Reacher, um, you know, we'll get him to the mid-50s and then sort of freeze him in aspect, I think. <laughs> you, mention, uh, you mention reality, but uh, of course Reacher is name-checked in, uh, in Stephen King's Under the Dome. He is, yeah. And we were talking about this in the office the other day. So clearly the Reacherverse and the King universe are one and the same. So uh, we're looking forward to an inevitable crossover. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, Stephen is so into uh, popular culture, you know, he references things back and forth, and he takes great delight in that, and I was thrilled about that, yeah, you know, because I loved Under the Dome, I thought it was actually a really significant novel, you know, not just the Stephen King thriller, but it was a kind of political allegory that really uh, Mm. represented the last many years, I think, and so... Yeah, for Richard to show up in that, especially the way that he did, you know, the reference to him was very respectful. Mm. I yes. thought that was terrific, yeah. But well, that opens up an interesting can of worms, because if <laughs> they are a part of the same universe, and Under the Dome obviously takes place as an alien, uh, aliens are involved, and the King universe obviously has vampires and whatnot, how would Richard deal with the supernatural? And is this a direction you might want to take him in <laughs> down the line? Well, Richard can barely deal with the natural, let alone the supernatural. <laughs> and I think, you know, Richard is an intensely rational sort of person, and it would probably make his head explode if he had to acknowledge aliens or or at least aliens of the Stephen King kind. I mean, I think Reacher sees aliens everywhere. I mean, everybody's alien compared to Reacher. I just wonder, I'd love to see Reacher punch one alien, just one, at, well, at one point in his life. Yeah, maybe. but, you know, the, maybe the alien is insubstantial and the fist would go straight through without any resistance, which <laughs> cause him to tear a ligament or something, especially at his age. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk a little more about uh, personal, which is the, the 19th, uh, Jack Reacher novel, and uh, you said Reacher doesn't change, but the environment around him changes. Mm. And and this time he comes, he comes back to Paris, and he comes back, and he comes to London as well. well he's been to London before, obviously, but uh, this time the book is largely set in London. Uh, why did you make that decision? Simply because, as you say, you know, it needs to be the same but different. And the difference can be the the environment, well, the type of story, of course. It can be a sort of lonely, dusty road type of story, or it can be a big, you know, CIA White House type of story. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be set anywhere, so I just thought, you know what, let's let's show the old guy a bit of glamour, and um, <laughs> and you know I don't plan, I don't I don't make a plan at all, and I I started out he he gets uh, he gets alerted through a, a personal ad in in the Army Times, which inevitably he finds on a bus, and inevitably mm-hmm. leafs through just out of pure curiosity, and there's there's the ad, Jack Reacher call somebody. Mm. Um, which he does, and then we're straight onto a private plane that takes him across the continent. And then I, I send him to Arkansas, 
Mm. And I remember writing a good scene in Arkansas. I mean, it's a good, chilling little sequence in Arkansas. But then I remember thinking, oh, really? Come on. Are we going to do it like Arkansas again? Or... <laughs> so I thought, I oh, know, let's send him to Paris. So all of a sudden he's in Paris. And um, partly because Reacher is this unchanging person and the env environment around him changes. So you've got the fish out of water thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, this rather awkward guy is now in Paris, and uh, I think that makes it all the more pointed what a fish out of water he is. Mm. And then London, but, you know, I didn't do the glamorous London. I, no. I didn't do the tourist London, the West End, and all of that kind of stuff. He's in Romford. Yes. Which, uh, <laughs> Steve Davis country. Yeah. I thought it was kind of, you know... Um, it's just more interesting for Reacher, I think. It yeah. more, it's certainly more at home there. You know, mm. Bromford is like kind of certain parts of Queens, possibly, or Staten Island, and uh, that's Reacher's more natural habitat. It's like the uh, the new series of Twenty Four when Jack Bauer goes to Ealing. It's <laughs> a little unexpected. Uh, you weren't tempted to take him to the Midlands, have him pull the arms off some Granada executives, you know. <laughs> Well, if he, if he went to the Midlands, of course, he'd have to stop at Villa Park. And, uh, you know, he probably wouldn't get any further than that, really, would he? I'm not going to talk to you about football because I'm a Liverpool fan and Villa turned well, us over the weekend. And as usual, yeah, Villa beat Liverpool in Anfield. Yeah. You know, it's becoming an annual right, really. It's, uh, it's a sore point. It's a sore uh, point. Well, any chance he could get relegated so we can avoid that next year? <laughs> I'm looking at, I mean, you know, second in the table as we speak. And, I'm, you know, obviously that's not going to last, but I'm thinking, you know, from my point, of you, this is one quarter of the way to safety with only four games gone. You know, how cool is that? The mindset of an Aston Villa fan, right there. <laughs> totally. Writers famously fall into two camps plotters and pantsers, or uh, architects and gardeners, if you're George R.R. Martin. Uh, you fall into the latter camp, is that fair to say? Very fair to say, yeah. People say to me, do I know what's going to happen in, you know, in the next chapter? I say, I don't know what's going to happen in the next line. <laughs> and is it is it very much that sort of old adage that the character writes it for you? You just let him just do what he would do? Yeah, I mean, that is a sort of shorthand way, because after all, whose fingers are on the keyboard? You know, I mean, let's be real, this guy doesn't exist. I'm yeah. doing the typing. But it's a shorthand way of saying, yeah, you know, just set up a problem. Now, what would happen? What What would a person do in that situation? And I think it moves it, first of all, closer to real life, because we don't know what's going to happen next. You know, we have not got the, the next week or month of our lives planned out. And, of course, it brings it much closer to the reading experience. What happens to me is I sit down in the morning to write, or the afternoon, to be technically accurate, sit down to write, and I'm just excited. What is going to happen today? Uh, in the same way that I want the reader to be excited. You know, the reader picks up the book, and they think, wow, okay, what's going to happen? And so we're both literally on the same page. The reader doesn't know a page ahead. I don't know a page ahead. <laughs> but the, the stories get quite complicated, and they, they have lots of sort of threads that intertwine each other. Do you just have that naturally kind of multi-track mind that goes through that? Yeah, I think it must be pretty natural or, or instinctive. But, of course, it's a slight illusion as well, because there are a lot of threads, but only some of them are important. And uh, so, you, you know, you start, let's say you've got six threads running. Well, as the book progresses, you say, well, okay, thread four is going to be the significant one mm. whereupon it then the, the reader thinks well I, wow he's, you know he's had five red herrings this is really uh, <laughs> sophisticated storytelling have you ever uh, written yourself into a corner that you can't get out of no I, 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 that's obviously a big danger and, uh, and some people do that you know I've heard of people scrapping tens of thousands of words but I, I, I just have this sort of efficient detector I can usually tell within three or four words whether it's heading down the wrong alley I don't think I've ever deleted more than, you know, six words. Is wow. there ever a situation you could write Reacher into that he couldn't get himself out of? I think not. 
I think not. And that's part of the appeal. And I had this real interesting conversation with one writer who had, uh, you know, his guy had to, he, he described this, I suppose, apartment block, which had a security device on the front door. And then much later in the book, he had to get his guy into that, into that apartment block. And so he was very, very tempted to go back 200 pages and make the security <laughs> device simpler. <laughs> but in the end, he said, no, it is what it is. The guy has to get through. And that's what I do with Richard, that whatever the situation is, he has to be able to triumph. And, and you know, that keeps me alert, it keeps me thinking, and it makes every problem genuine. You know, you can't just go back and make it easier. He has to conquer whatever the situation is. Uh, so 20th uh, Reach Novel you've just begun it can you give us a sneak preview I can tell you the title the title is Make Me Ooh. and I can't give you a sneak preview because as we've said as we've gone along I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen I've written the first couple of pages I have no idea what's going to happen on page 3 oh, wow. has he okay. hit anyone yet he has not. He's just gotten off a train. He hasn't hit anybody yet. That's coming soon, I imagine. Give it time. <laughs> uh, we have some very, very quick questions uh, here, Lee, from uh, readers. Uh, uh, Tarek Ashkanani asks, is it true the Reacher books are actually a series of autobiographies? Yeah, they're pretty much autobiographical in terms of all this sort of internal stuff. But for the violence, I try and tone it down for the books <laughs> to keep it plausible. <laughs> Uh, at El Carius asks, I'd love to see a TV version of Reacher. Any chance? This is interesting because obviously Harry Bosch is uh, is coming to the small screen with Amazon. Yeah, it is. But I, you know, the difference between me and Michael Connolly is I used to work in television <laughs> and he didn't. So I'm staying away from it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Bat Sphinx asks, Why do you occasionally choose to write in the first person? I like first person better. I think it's intimate. It's a great connection between the character and the reader. But it limits you in terms of plot. So for the sort of plot where you need to see behind the scenes or see what the bad guys are doing on Unknown, then uh, you've got to go third person. Okay. Uh, Mark King, 1974, asks, Which animal, when fired from a cannon, do you think you could catch? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would depend pretty much on their, their sort of organic integrity and size, because if it's a small furry thing, it's going to be in lots of little pieces and it would be difficult to, uh, to catch them all. <laughs> so I would probably go for an, a small baby armadillo. <laughs> okay. Would be quite... The shell might bounce off your hands. It might be quite tough to catch. Well, you know, the shell would be catchable at least. It wouldn't be like a sort of pink mist or a paste. <laughs> A good point. And the last one from our reader is from Carl Hughes, 001. In the Reacher forums, there's a lot of enthusiasm for a Reacher console game in the style of Grand Theft Auto. Any plans? That's out of my hands, you know. All that stuff is handled by by people who would buy the rights and so on. And so uh, I'm a simple guy. All I do is write the books. What anybody does afterwards is up to them. Okay. And then just a couple of last questions from us. Uh, I was once on a flight and saw Jim Carter from Downton Abbey reading, I think it was worth dying for. Uh, when was the last time you saw a famous person or heard of a famous person reading a Reacher book? Well, you know, I'm not going to name drop, but I hear that, <laughs> like, all the time. Um, uh, there's that guy Murakami, who's some very high-flown mm. intellectual Japanese novelist. A month or so ago, I heard that he was in big trouble in Japan because he was b- sort of betraying his intellectual status by being a Reacher fan. <laughs> 
How does it make you feel when people say that? Well, it, it makes me feel great because I'm one of, you know, I think these books are appealing to a wide span of people. And if you've got um, all these highbrow folks and then uh, regular folks too, it shows you that it's working. Mm. And uh, there's an interesting series going on at the moment as well, written by Diane Capri called The Hunt for Jack Reacher, mm. uh, in which there, I think it's two FBI agents searching for a Reacher. They're on the periphery of Reacher stories. Is that semi-authorized? I mean, obviously you're aware of it. You've, you've Yeah, it's authorized. And there's going to be uh, more more people doing it. I've said as long as you do not show Reacher himself walking or talking, mm-hmm. then help yourself. You know, the Reacher universe is, a, is open to everybody. and Because uh, a lot of these people, you know, publishing stuff, they don't have much luck. If you want to... If you want to weigh into it that is kind of already pre-marketed, help yourself. Including Stephen King. Including Stephen King. Yeah, I'm helping Stephen King every day. <laughs> <laughs> he needs, you need small struggling authors need that helping hand. Yeah, Diane Capri, Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, Lee Child. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank My you so pleasure much. entirely. Great to see you. Lovely Lee Child there. And now it's time for some lovely movie news. Let's start this week. It's New Empire Day. Let's get the quick shameless plug out of the way. And here to help us shamelessly plug the magazine is Dan Jolin of Empire Magazine hey everyone Dan Jolin hey. he's just appeared as if by magic via a wormhole hello um, hello hello Chris hello Dan how are you I'm very well thank you now why <laughs> I imagine you're wondering when we called you here yeah um, I know how, why did I get dragged through a wormhole from the first floor I don't know uh, oh I do know it's because this month's uh, cover feature yeah this month's cover feature is Interstellar Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But you were on set of yeah. Interstellar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have mentioned it six yeah. or 70 times. And then were you in the edit suite with Chris Nolan? Well, technically, uh, it was the sound. It was the, it was the dubbing. I was on dubbing the dub stage. stage. Yeah. And then did you and Chris Nolan go on holiday together and now are living very, very happily in London's... <laughs> no, 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 no. But but we did go on holiday around the same time. But I I went to Scotland, and I'm sure he went somewhere. Not that there's anything wrong with Scotland, because I love Scotland. Oh. But I'm sure he went somewhere even more exotic and wonderful. More exotic and wonderful than Scotland? Yes. I know it's hard to believe. I don't believe no. it. No. Anyway, back to the magazine, though. <laughs> so tell us about Interstellar, uh, but without giving away spoilers, because then I, I believe that the hitman standing behind you, who mm. seems to have been hired by Chris Nolan, will actually shoot you in the head. Well, actually, I'd like to, you know, obviously spoilers, where everyone's obsessed with spoilers. You can read this feature. I just want to assure everyone, you can read this feature. Don't worry. There's nothing in it. There are even some things that I know that I didn't put in because I didn't want to... Spoil anything, literally. Yeah, I remember um, doing that when I was on set of X Men: Days of Future Past. Exactly. I don't know if I, don't know if I mentioned it, guys. But, exactly, uh, exactly, just yeah. like that. And honestly, obviously, Chris, Chris, and I had been on so many amazing big films. With you know, we found out so many amazing things so that we amazing. just couldn't tell anyone. Oh my god! And it hurts, doesn't it, Chris? It does hurt. You're as bursting I, to tell. As people. I was saying to Joss Whedon on yeah. the set of the Avengers. Yeah. All right, um, just stop it. Let's get back what? to the magazine. <laughs> uh, first line of Dan's uh, feature. Is Christopher Nolan is flying a spaceship? Yes. Whee! That's not a fake out. Okay, <laughs> I'm just want to say that's not a fake out opener. Is is uh, I turned up. He's uh, basically they were shooting, built all these sets, the same place they built the Batcave for uh, for Batman Begins, and um, they've got all the interior spaceship sets there. Or well, they did. So I turned up and and I know I know and I was shown in and and there was this you know massive 
you know, several ton huge spaceship thing, which we've now seen in the trailers. It's the Ranger, the ship that reminds me of the Lotus Esprit from uh, The Spy You Love Me. And it was this, like, full-size or 80% full-size thing. Absolutely massive. Up on this gimbal. And Nolan's standing there with this, this thing. I turned out it's called a Waldo. It's in the piece. You learn a lot here. Um, it's a piece of sort of like, you know, copper triangle thing that, that he wiggles around. And when he wiggled it, it made the ship itself move. And there's an IMAX camera attached to the side of the thing, fixed to the side for the sort of perspective. And, and it's a shot of the ship coming down into the atmosphere of another planet. Wow. Um, and, and yeah, he, every, every movement he made on the Waldo made this huge ship shake and twist and turn. And it sort of like tipped upwards and, you know, tilted downwards and was all moving around and you know in this in this age in this day and age of as we all do mm. we all do turn up on these what's well, maybe except phil who who does more respectable worthy things we turn up on these massive huge sound stages with green screen everywhere and uh, there was there was there was and this is a line that comes up in the feature as well i didn't see any green screen when i was there and they hadn't shot any green screen while i was there and yet it's set in space most of it I'm getting chills. And uh, Nolan seemed to be having the time of his life. Well, of course, you were there. Have you ever felt like this before? (laughs) (laughs) Don't put Christopher Nolan in a corner. (laughs) Just remember that. Yes. It was a great day. I went wandering around the sets. I sat in, you know, Matthew McConaughey's pilot seat. A technical day, which everyone was very apologetic. Oh, sorry, it's a technical day. It's a technical day. And I was just like, hey, this is great. Um, <laughs> I could spend all day at one point the producer Emma Thomas I was sitting in this there's, there's another ship called the Lander I'll explain and it's designed so that the ship could actually flip upside down but everyone sat in their seats would stay the right way up Ooh. Um, so ev- all the seats are kind of sorry I'm doing hand gestures here which isn't useful but all the seats are on these kind of pivots these rods if you like so mm-hmm. that when things turn around them they, they stay in the same position. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The kind of little cradles almost. So I sat in this seat, like legs are sort of either side of a little joystick thing, mm-hmm. and and uh, producer Emma Thomas actually started swinging me on this on the on this seat. It was like a little kind of you know Whee! playground ride or something <laughs> like that. I was like, Whee, I'm shooting, I'm shooting Tie Fighters, yay! <clears throat> I'm very <laughs> I'm very professional, and yeah. uh, and and it was a very valuable day, um, good business critical day. Good, good, good. And how would you rate your feature out of ten? Did you? Did you? I don't rate it? my own. I don't rate my own features. <laughs> no. I don't rate my own features. I it's, would say it's would... one of Dan's best. It's a really good long form read. Like there's a lot of information in there. With I, I would agree spoilers. Okay. Well, um, but I do feel like I learned a lot from it. Hang on, I'll be the judge of that. Hang on. Just, okay, we're we're, we're not going to stop the whole thing for you to read the entire feature, Chris. It's mm? it's thousands of words. That's pretty good so far. <laughs> oh, Jonah Nolan's in it. That's good. That's good. All right. No, it's very good. Uh, but Dan. Your interstellar feature forms the centrepiece, doesn't it, mm-hmm. of a galaxy of features within the magazine. Tell us about that as well. Well, yeah, it's something because Nolan talks about, he's, he's always happy to talk about his influences. Uh, he's not shy of them. A very obvious one is 2001, A Space mm-hmm. Odyssey. And I think when you see the film, you will really see the connection there. And another one that, uh, that, that he brought up when we were talking that I hadn't really anticipated was The Right Stuff. Um, so we thought, well, let's 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 sort of respect this and, and celebrate this. So mm. we tracked down Kier Delia, and I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I've never known how to pronounce his name. Kier Delia, I don't know. I'm Delea, saying Kier Delia. I would say Delia, anyway. but. Uh, we, we tracked him down. He is, of course, Dave from 2001. <laughs> Just, there's something amazing about a guy called Kier Delia. 
playing Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm Dave. Dave the astronaut. So Dave the astronaut. <laughs> what are you doing, us, Dave? Yeah. About that thing. <laughs> that isn't how Hal pronounces it, is it? Dave. Stop that, Dave. Well, actually, Dave. on set, that probably was how Hal pronounced it because one of the stories Keir tells is because they recast the voice of, of uh, Hal. Um, they got one of the crew people to be the voice of Hal while he was doing those scenes. And Hal, yeah, did talk a bit like this, really. Bloody nail, Dave. Yeah. Daisy, Daisy, <laughs> give me your answer, do. Um, so we talked to Gidalia about his experience being in 2001. It's actually like, what did it feel like being in those sets and, you know, uh, being someone in that environment? Mm. And then we also talked to uh, Philip Kaufman. Kaufman, Kaufman, yeah. Kaufman yeah. Um, about the right stuff, which is uh, an overlooked American classic. It's um, a film that too few people have seen, considering mm-hmm. how uh, influential and brilliant it is. Mm-hmm. And they should read the book as well. And the book's brilliant. Yeah. Indeed, uh, an amazing example of the new journalism. Indeed. Um, so, uh, which is very inspiring to everyone in this room, I imagine. Um, Loves. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we we broke those 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 two things out. Um, we also uh, have got some focus pieces on the spaceships, the three spaceships that appear in the mm-hmm. film, and the robots. Ooh, I'm excited by the robots. There are robots. Yeah, I'm case, excited. Yeah. Case and Tars. So there's a bit of uh, there's a bit of info there on the robots. Awesome. Uh, it really is, I guess, the first proper in depth look anywhere in the world at this movie. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And you spoke to McConaughey as well. I did, yes, yes. Um, he lay down on the floor in front of me. It was surprising, but it was fair enough. <laughs> Which is something that happens to you all the yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> it's like saying the piece said, he's a guy who's so laid back, he was literally laid back. The lovely Anne Hathaway uh, spoke with her um, about uh, slipping and sliding around on glaciers in, in, in Iceland. For, for this film not just for fun mm-hmm. uh, Jessica Chastain as well uh, I spoke to and uh, and then all the amazing heads of department technical people great talent people like Paul Franklin Nathan Crowley it was yeah access all areas Chris fantastic I'm just laughing because um, Stan writes the contents every month which are if you never read the contents because most people don't in magazines uh, knowing that Dan then takes the opportunity to just go nuts in the content section and every month it's very very funny and I just read your joke about the right stuff which won't make people at home laugh now but it made me laugh uh, Philip Kaufman reflects on his Space Race classic and resists our attempts to call him the Jägermeister <laughs> sorry I shouldn't laugh at my own joke <laughs> yeah no, you <laughs> still okay uh, you got to go haven't you, you I have you I, go I, something. I have to go somewhere very special and very top secret and very top secret but, but it will be revealed in two issues time yes it will it will indeed it will indeed bye <laughs> everyone bye bye Dan bye Dan bye Dan bye. Dan Joel and everybody Hey. Don't like that oh guy. God. There's something about him. But there's more in the issue than just Interstellar, although the Interstellar stuff is reason enough to buy. But we celebrate 15 years of the West Wing. James Dyer has spent <laughs> genuinely nearly a year putting this together. He has talked to everyone involved in the West Wing, pretty much, and and assembled uh, an oral history, the yes. likes of which the world has never seen. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to know anything... <laughs> about the West Wing it will be in there if um, you were uh, involved in the West Wing in some capacity and James has not spoken to you then please do come forward we'd like to <laughs> know your identity and sort of close the loop in that and, one and also just bit. check that you're okay I mean yeah. you know pr- presumably there's a reason it is phenomenal uh, Jimbo was deep 
deep involved in this this feature. His first draft was forty two thousand words long. I'm not kidding, <laughs> forty two thousand words long. The actual feature is about four thousand. It's great. He spoke to everybody: Sorkin, Sheen, the one, Schlammer, the one who walks around and talks about Richard Schiff, everybody. Yeah. Um, it's, oh. it's it's wonderful. And there is also uh, a, a little treat or big treat in there for uh, Cumber fans. Cumber fans, Cumber yes. Benedict Cumberbatch is this month's big interview. Very fun interview he did with Ollie Richards while uh, he was racing through Heathrow to catch a flight. Benedict Cumberbatch, that is not Ollie Richards. He's not allowed to travel. There are other features as well. Brad Pitt's Fury. We were deep, deep inside. Uh, we're in the tank for that one. You could, you could oh. say that just. Uh, Mr. Turner as well, uh, Timothy Spall and uh, Mike Lee's latest collaboration. Uh, we talked to them both on that one as well. It's a, it's a really good, really, really solid issue as well. Um, there's all the usual movie news as well. We have set visits from the likes of Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. Uh, there's a picture of Dan Stevens, our new spirit animal in there, if anyone wants to <laughs> pick that one out. There's a really funny set visit on the set of Get Santa, which is uh, stars Jim Broadbent as Santa Claus, which just seems right somehow yeah. just seems perfect yeah. there's a great piece on Nightcrawler the uh, the new Jake Gyllenhaal film which could be a dark horse in the Oscar race David Kep talks about Mordecai for the first time Liam Neeson and uh, and Olivier Megaton the director with the most explosive name in movies talk about Taken 3 for the first time there's some really really interesting stuff in there as well Simon Kinberg talks about Star Wars Rebels which is a very very interesting interview as well we've got something on the Babadook as well which is the uh, the year's scariest film and uh, Mads Mikkelsen becomes the second uh, Hannibal Lecter to take uh, to take the how much is a pint of milk Q&A that's very very funny as well it's a cracking issue uh, lots of good stuff in there £3.99 from all good and evil and undecided news agents so do pick it up it's also available as well on the IPID which I believe is how you pronounce that uh, right, that's it for movie news, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, got, uh, to be, there's got to be nothing else. This is pretty much it. New issue of Empire's out. You should go and buy it immediately, and let's move on. I don't think so, Chris. I think we've we've got a few stories to go uh, go first. The first thing, which is something we've all seen coming for a long time, but it's uh-huh. been confirmed officially, yes. is that Brian Singer will direct X-Men Apocalypse, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, the next instalment in the sort of first-class era of the X-Men, pushing it forward another 10 years um, and so we're now in the 80s and they are facing N. Sabanur, the mm. oldest mutant around, arguably, who knows, in the depths of the comics. They'll retcon um, it again. <laughs> they'll retcon it again. Uh, but he is uh, a serious, serious threat um, to all of all mutants and they must band together and uh, defeat him. Yes, or do they? Or, or do does they? Magneto team up with him or does Magneto go nuts again? Probably like not, he, you know, maybe. Like, yeah. Oh, get out of my place, Menzabar Nur, he'll Call say. Call me Magneto. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, intriguing. Uh, that's coming out in 2016. Yeah. So he's going straight into that, I presume. He was talking at one point and maybe doing a smaller project. It would have to be pretty darn small. It would have to be very small. It would have to be like Kevin Smith-sized, you know, like one of those films you can make in two weeks, something like that. I've gone very Irish all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, very intriguing. Very intriguing indeed. And also there's been... Um, the Deadpool news happened after we came out mm. last week. So it did. Uh, which is the news that uh, Fox have finally given the green light to Deadpool as a direct result of the footage that leaked, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't see them, but uh, it leaked onto the internet and everyone went, hey, this Deadpool movie looks quite good. And Fox went, yes, we agree with you, and let's make one now. <laughs> um, so there's Tim Miller, the director, is still attached. Just I think they're trying to work out Ryan Reynolds' deal. I think so. Uh, he's always been keen, so you've got to imagine he's, he's trying to make it happen. Indeed. And I just um, hope that they... I actually hope that they give it a small enough budget that they can keep the edges on. I think that's the real key here. We don't actually need a giant city-threatening, uh, you know, apocalypse thing at mm. the end. What we need is is something small enough that it can be 
tough. Well, this is what I think has happened with both of, of Hugh Jackman's Wolverine movies, in that they start off with the best of intentions yeah. to be gritty and downbeat and just about him. And then they, they, get, they panic. They go, no, we need more mutants. And so that's why I think Viper was in the last one. And that's why I think Silver Samurai turned up. And it's just the last 20 minutes of that movie is just, it goes off the rails so spectacularly after what is a fairly decent build up. And obviously with X-Men Origins Wolverine, there were so many mutants. It just, it just yeah. it became an X-Men movie in all but name. Yeah, it did. And uh, it'd be nice if they could stick to the guns with Deadpool. I suppose the idea of just cutting out blood to get a PG-13 is always one that infuriates me. You get those ridiculous situations like in the Golden Compass where a character's jaw is ripped off, but nary a drop of blood is spilled. You, you know, you're trying to get the effect of violence without the actual violence, which is insane. The problem is you, you need it to be twisted and you need it to be dark. And I, I think if it isn't, we might be headed into some problems. But fingers crossed, we don't know anything yet. It's all very early stages. So there is hope for Deadpool, and I think that's important to remember. Hope for Deadpool. <laughs> Hashtag justice for Deadpool. Uh, also, talking about something we've known for a long, long time, Dan mentioned True Detective and Matthew he did, McConaughey. Yeah. Uh, so these, this cast has been rumoured for a long, long time, but it was confirmed this week that Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell will be two of the stars, not the stars necessarily but two of the stars of the second season of True Detective. Mm. One playing a cop, one playing a career criminal. The internet went nuts to this in a, in, a, in a weird way. It was like, I can't, these, are, these guys are good actors. I don't, quite, I don't quite get it. I think, to be honest, I can, I can see that, you know, Vince Vaughn's uh, career over the last few years has not given us many stone-cold classics. I think it's probably fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, surely that just means that he has more to prove than any man alive going into a True Detective series and will be, you know, pulling out the stops to blow us all away. I mean, I think it's exactly what he probably needs uh, in terms of just re- reminding us that he isn't just about rubbish comedies. Uh, and I think it's something that he has hinted at in the past and, and shown in the past that he can do. So I'm mm. actually pretty stoked about this. And I think Colin Farrell, I mean... Uh, people tend to be love him or hate him I tend to fall into the former camp I think no man alive does guilt better than Colin Farrell um, it's part of our Irish charm mm-hmm. so uh, so I think he could be really interesting as a sort of, it sounds like he's a slightly corrupted cop, he's certainly in a um, in a, in league with mobsters so uh, that should be right in his wheelhouse Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't quite get it I don't quite get it, I think it's good casting myself, Phil what do you think? I think, um, I like Colin Farrell I think he's got... I, th- I like him as a comic actor. I'm not sure he's going to be doing that much in this. But I think he's got good range. I'm not so sure about Vince Vaughn. His range is seems a little limited, but perhaps it's been limited by the roles he's taken, which have been written for him um, and that persona of his. So, I don't know. I mean, I thought the first season was great. It certainly deserves us to go into the second one with an open mind. Um, I'm not sure where all the fury has come from uh, for that, mm. personally. People have got to be angry about something. Yeah, I guess. Um... I have another quick story which came through yesterday, which is news that Roger Donaldson, um, who's been around for eons, making pretty good films, including Mm. No Way Out, a personal favourite, is remaking All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which of course was made famous by Ernest Borgnine in the 80s and and the Oscar winning film in the uh, (laughs) late 20s. Um, And uh, it may or may not star Mark Radcliffe. Mark Radcliffe? The DJ. Daniel. It may or may not star Daniel Radcliffe, uh, who's been sort of linked with the project mm. for quite a while. It's been it's been in the ether, but obviously with the First World War anniversaries over the next four years, it's probably one that's going to get, uh, you know, get the green light quite yeah. soon. 
I mean, Daniel Radcliffe has World War One previous, doesn't he, from uh, the Rudyard Kipling mm. uh, TV series. That's right, Which yeah. he was in. Um, so, was that My Boy, Our Boy? Yeah, but about Rudyard Kipling's yeah. son, yes. right? Yeah, he played him. Exactly, he does. I can totally see him in the role. Yeah. It'd be interesting to make a film now from the enemy's point of view, which is obviously what the film is. It's from the set, the book, rather, uh, Eric Marie Remarque's book, novel was the German experience of the First World War in the trenches. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah. But I think it's, it's worldwide popularity ever since just shows that it's, it captures the universal experience of that war. It's not, you know, it's not jingoistic in, in that sense. There's jingoistic characters in it, but it, it's not a film that is, that is limited in its relevance to, to Germany, definitely. So, yeah, fingers crossed fingers for Fingers crossed this. for, for a Warhorse cameo as well, potentially. <laughs> sort of prancing across the horizon, potentially. <laughs> so it all takes place in a Warhorse of first. <laughs> 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 at least these shared universe movies are getting out of hand now they really are this is this is weird the cast of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is growing bigger by the week and getting better by the week as well because now Charles Dance and Lena Headey have, uh, have joined the, the cast yeah I'm getting I'm, this can't be good this movie can it, 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 it it's upsetting you isn't it because you'd planned to completely ignore it and now there's all these people in it and you want to watch it yeah send the lines be strong Chris come on I mean, oh, listen. I don't understand. Maybe they will find a tone that totally works for this. Maybe they can just keep that sort of straight-faced ridiculousness and, and make it really work. We don't write things off, Chris. Come we on. We don't write things off. Every day is Christmas Eve at Empire. But you know, Christmas Eve, all your presents are under the tree, and you know that one's going to be an iPad, right? Do you? Wow. Your high sign's oh, awesome. Wow. No, sorry, I live with uh, Cameron Diaz and Jason Siegel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know one's going to be an iPad, or you're hoping one's going to be an iPad, and if, if there's not, you're going to take the Twitter and have a go with your ooh, parents. Ooh. Um, you know that one's going to be a pair of mouldy socks. Right. Right. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, but is this would all these people wear mouldy socks? It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. I may be stretching the metaphor. It doesn't <laughs> seem right. Charles Dance to me is the sort of guy that, you know, gets an iPad for Christmas. I don't know where I'm going with this anymore, but anyway, that's that's basically... It, I think, for the movie news. I think just, so, yes. Just so there's some uh, X-Men uh, Apocalypse feral websites already online. There two are, years before, yeah. A year and a half before the movie comes out. Okay, that's it for the movie news. Our second guest this week is Antoine Fuqua, the director of this week's Dental Washington thriller, The Equalizer, which marks the first time the duo have worked together since Training Day in 2001, which, of course, marked the second time the Dental won an Oscar. Since then, Fuqua's had a varied career, taking in the likes of the ill-fated King Arthur and the Mark Wahlberg actioner shooter, to name but two. But he's back, back, back with The Equalizer, adding to last year's guilty pleasure, Olympus Has Fallen, and soon to be followed by potential Oscar shot, Southpaw, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and the remake of The Magnificent Seven, which once again will star Denzel Washington. Uh, Mr. Fuqua came into our pod booth to have a very frank and funny chat with Ali Plum, and yes, it's me again. Sorry. Enjoy. Uh, we are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of The Equalizer, and Training Day, of course, and Olympus Has Fallen, Mr. Antoine Fuqua. Hello, sir. How are Hello. you? Hello. I am good. Good, Happy good, good. How was my pronunciation of your surname? It was perfect. Yeah, you should hear some of the other ones. <laughs> what How, have you, when what I was have you in, had? When I was in Japan, it was Antoine Fuqua. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's not good. With the hard emphasis on the fuck. A hard emphasis okay. on the fuck, yeah. Yeah. Antoine Fuqua. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, and it's shocking because you can't, you can't correct it. <laughs> it's not like they're going to fix it. <laughs> yeah, that's my name, fuck. <laughs> Today, that's my name. Yeah, exactly. In the, in the Equalizer, if someone said the name wrong of the Equalizer, there would yeah. be more of a 
comeuppance. You're not going to whip out some garden furniture. And- <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm looking at these microphones and wires and stuff and thinking if they get my name wrong, <laughs> this little plastic bottle here is going to somebody's eye. <laughs> well, you know, it's recycling. It's good for the environment. It's so good, man. You we're know, happy with that. Used for something. But it's also the second remake mm. of an Edward Woodward property. The mm. first, of course, was Neil Butte's The Wicker Man with mm. Nicolas Cage. Right, that's right. Now, when you're making this movie... Was that hanging over your head like the sort of Damocles? Like, you know, we best not repeat <laughs> mistakes of the Wicker Man. We need to get this right. Yeah. Well, you know what? The thing is, you do you do think about that. I do. You know what I mean? Um, but then you just throw it out and just make the best version of the script that you have. And, you know, you, you recreate the character. And, and, you, and I thought about him as the, sort of the seed of that character. You would imagine, you know, a guy like Edward, uh, which I didn't watch the show as much. I was young. I was running around in the streets and... At that time, I think Miami Vice was on. and mm. My mother and my grandmother loved Edward. You know, he was in the suit and a nice Jaguar. He's all cool and his accent, you know. <laughs> and I was watching Miami Vice with the Ferraris and the girls on the beach, you know. So, you know. But um, I, 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 what I loved about the show that Edward did was it was always about a man doing the right thing yeah. without wanting any recognition for it. You know, yeah. It was just helping people who couldn't help themselves. And that always stuck with me. So when we did this, uh, the writer Richard Wink wrote a really good script. And Denzel and myself sat and talked a lot about that character. And I thought, you know, if if we saw the beginning of where Edward came from, from the very seeds of it, he could easily have been that type of guy as well. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? We saw him already when he was established and, you know, he already was doing a certain uh, uh, certain deeds where Denzel's character is becoming the equalizer. Could well be your first franchise so to speak i mean are you going to hang around for a sequel if it were to happen I yeah i mean yeah you know it's always up to the people right movies yeah. belong to the people so like your star wars shirt yeah. so you know if, if if the people show up and really enjoy it and, and they're interested in robert mccall there's a lot of story to be told i would definitely love to do it if sony wants to do it i'm there you know i think it can be and i don't think it should stay in the united states by the way i think it can travel he's got a passport He's got a passport, and he's a, he, he's a normal guy. He can just mm. live anywhere. You know, there's no reason he has to live in in Boston. And if you do take it, say over to the UK with a sequel, will you make sure that it's Equalizer with an S rather than with a Z? <laughs> hey, yeah, hey, that has nothing to do with me, man. <laughs> that's an American thing. <laughs> that's the that's the big wigs who decided on that one. It's got nothing to do with football. Just to make that absolutely clear, it's about a man yeah. who works in a garden centre. What's it like to shoot so much of a movie, a decent chunk of a movie, inside a garden centre? Was that a difficult set to find? And mm. is it, was there a moment where you looked at yourself and went, I'm directing Denzel Washington working in a garden centre today? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. In fact, it was, it was a place that we found. We got lucky, and it was an abandoned um, um, Lowe's or something like that. Okay. So we took it over, but nothing was in it. So we had to put all the stuff in it. And, you know, Are you and kidding? If, you had to fill a garden Yeah, center. we filled that. It was crazy. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. It was the biggest yard sale you ever saw in your life, I'm sure, Sony. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm shooting. Uh, also, he had the ball head. You know how he looked. He's got the, you know, the big, like one guy called him fisherman clothes. You know, the big pants up here and stuff like that. And I'm shooting him, pushing the uh, dolly down the aisle, and I'm thinking, I was just in a car with Denzel a few years ago, and he was a badass with the chains on and Dr. Dre music, and now he's pushing a dolly in the garden center. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? And he's just, okay, but hey, he makes it work, and he's just trying to blend into the world. But when he's not in the garden center, he's, uh, he's um, dishing out some punishment. He really mm-hmm. is. And there are, there are moments where his character really gets inventive when it comes to dispatching enemies. Mm. 
how fun was it discussing possible dispatching methods uh, outside of shooting? Were you like, well, we could do something fun with, mm. I don't know, a pair of pliers. I don't know. <laughs> you should have saw my office. It was a torture chamber. But it all came out of like, it came out of the narrative. It came out of meeting with my, my buddy who's um, one's an SAS guy okay. and, an, and another guy's a Navy SEAL and all that. And, they, you know, we literally talked about what, if, if it was a certain room, what they may use if they had to. These Got things it. are there. So it came out of that. And it also informs you about this guy a little bit because the exposition is boring. And you can see more by physically what he does. And you can start to put in your own mind. He obviously comes from that violent background to know mm. how to do that anyway in the first place. Um, but yeah, it was fun to answer your question. Yeah. And there were some days where there were some things on the desk where Denzel would walk in and go, you're sick. Like, what, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You got to use the drill. <laughs> we, you know, you've talked about like maybe moving somewhere else and I made that terrible joke about Z and S's. But speaking of things coming to Britain, mm. London has fallen. Is a film mm. that you're not involved with. I'm going to ask a couple of questions about Olympus Has Fallen. Mm. Was it you who was anything to do with the bust of, I think, Abraham Lincoln mm. being slammed into the guy's head? Was that you that came up with that? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know if it was written in the script or not, but we just were having some fun, me and, me and Gerard, you know what I mean? And it was like, yeah, let's sit him upside the head with the, the Lincoln bust, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was kind of one of those things. I'm not sure if it was in the script or not. It may have been, but uh, we, we uh, cracked that. You know how heavy that thing really is? Yeah. I mean, it's like you couldn't lift that up and swing it that way, <laughs> you know, but we made a good replica, you know. Do you have to get permission from the uh, the White House to hit someone over the head with a Lincoln bust? Uh, yeah, we sent Obama a couple of letters and <laughs> he sent it back and he said... Uh, Olympus Has Fallen also has uh, probably my favorite line of any movie from last year, okay. which is, uh, let's play a game of fuck off, you go first. Oh, yeah, 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 that was in the script. That was in the script. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry delivered it well. Yeah, let's play a game of fuck off. You go first. It's a Rick Yarn. That was fun, man. You know, and then, you know, Olympus has fallen. Was it London has fallen? They call it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like the script at all. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think it's tricky to do that personally, but you know, I think it's tricky. You know, you have to really be careful with that, I think. You know, well, that's sort of die hard. How can the same shit happen at the same time? Yeah. Point? You know, and then also, you know, London. I don't know the London. Uh, I mean, the White House, again, I met with some, some friends that helped me lay that out. And, you know, you leave stuff out as far as, the security, because there's certain things they have in place that that couldn't happen, of course. But I don't know the system here enough to make a movie about how the guys really work here and what could you use here. I could have sat with some SAS guys, former SAS guys, and just talked with them just for fun. Mm. But I think it's tricky when you're doing that. And I, I think, I don't know, I just think it's tricky. And, and like I said, the script wasn't, I didn't like the script. That movie, I know, Olympus Has Fallen, was basically, you were very much up against it in terms of deadlines right from the off, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, I and prepped then, it in... Less than six weeks. Wow. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Seriously, there were some days where I, I, I thought I, I, I needed to see a, a psychiatrist that I even took that job because uh, it was we had to build the White House. We built that on the lawn, um, a lot of that. Yeah. Because I had to actually shoot it and physically be on it with the guys going up steps. And, it, and my production designer, Derek Hill, is a pretty amazing guy. And uh, he had he did uh, um, Oliver Stone's movie, W. So he had a, he already knew certain things. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's a good start. So immediately we started putting it together and laying it out. And we shot this, we shot that part of it in Shreveport. Have you been to Shreveport? I've been. Don't. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> the armpit of the world, okay? <laughs> and it was 100 and something degrees every day. And I'm in Shreveport, man. It's just like, I, I thought I was in purgatory. I said, did I do something wrong? Like, did I die? Did you and not I mean, unwind at the casinos? 
Um, the casino, it's like the dirtiest place in the world, right? The chips alone probably have some sort of asbestos on it. But uh, it's bad, man. But we shot down there, and um, then we went to D.C. and did the, the plates and all that kind yeah. of stuff and him running around. But, man, that was a rough one, I got to tell you, you know. Plus, we were, you know, we were racing against Sony's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you won. Yeah, you know what I mean? The audience chose. They did. Uh, I just did my job. <laughs> and quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, of course, this is a Sony movie. Uh, but um, yeah. you, uh, yeah. you yeah. um and Luckily, they hired me to do Equalizer, so it all worked out. Absolutely. Because the, the, the point I was getting at about that was you had such a compressed uh, production schedule on Olympus Has Fallen. Mm. Uh, I would have thought you had been taking a six-month holiday after that, but you went straight into the Equalizer, didn't you? I went straight into the Equalizer. Um, I think I prepped that in seven weeks. Wow. Roughly. Okay. Um, something like that. And then I just went, I just finished shooting a, a Southpaw, the yeah. boxing movie I've been working on for a while with Jake Gyllenhaal, and I'm editing that right now. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm starting to, uh, as I'm editing, I'm starting to put together my next one with Denzel, The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, man? I'm, I'm, I box. I've been an athlete my whole life. I love the energy of that. I think pressure is good. I mean, when you physically can do it. I, I I think I get better each time I evolve and learn a lot from the last movie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like uh, anything you do, the more you do it, the more consistent you do it, you learn some things. You learn some, you look at your mistakes or the things you did well and you try to adjust. I think when you sit around just being comfortable, you know, especially if you're lucky enough to continue to work and, and make movies, um, you should take that knowledge and immediately put it to work if you, if you physically can. Yeah, we have a director over here. I don't know whether you've you've seen any of his films. Ben Wheatley, who does, mm-hmm. he's very very prolific. He's made four films in four years. Shoots mm-hmm. films in two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it, it's very interesting to see you're working that hard as well. How 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 long did South Southpaw take? Shot Southpaw and it was a forty two days, somewhere around forty two days. Yeah. yeah, about forty two days um, to shoot it and prepped it. And I think I prepped that one um, about eight weeks. Somewhere, somewhere, not 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 a lot of prep. You know, mm. maybe eight weeks, something like that. But I've been I've been working on that one for about five years. I mean, I got it from Steven Spielberg uh, years ago and Harvey Weinstein you know uh, went and got it for me when I called him and Eminem was going to play the role at first and um, then his schedule got tied up but he gave us you know some great music and stuff and then I got Jake Gyllenhaal and when you see him let me see that picture and when you see him what I did with him man he's a beast I changed changed him he's going to be like what Denzel was in training day oh my god I had him training twice a day took him to Mayweather's gym in Vegas, trained him with uh, our training man, Denzel's trainer, Terry Claiborne, who has fighters. Uh, I took him to uh, every fight, Pacquiao, Mayweather, you know, uh, every fight we can get to, uh, Cotto fight in New York. And literally, that's what I did with him. Jeepers. Him. Just, seen a, you know, just being shown a picture of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Wow, that CG work on Jake is pretty Not impressive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You tell him that. That's twice a day, every day. Grinding it out in the gym. Did he oh, go that's straight ridiculous. into that from, say, Nightcrawler, where he yeah. lost loads of weight? Yeah, well? he, yeah, you saw him in Nightcrawler. Yeah, he was yeah. skinny little guy, weird guy. I did, saw did him the he, other day. Did he do the voice for you? Because I know he likes doing his monologue from that, and it's he becomes this really he becomes creepy guy. Yeah, yeah, he's very creepy. Because I met him when he was doing that. Oh, really? We had met years ago, but I sat down and talked to him about Southpaw, and this little skinny guy came to meet me, and I was sitting there going, like, I don't know, I'm going to turn this guy into a boxer. <laughs> I mean, good God. And so I said, all right, you, you need to come to the gym. Let me see if you can even throw a punch. And he was already just kind of 160-something pounds playing that role. Yeah. And I said, I need you to be at least 185 fighting weight, and I need you to be in the gym every day boxing and learn how to do it. And he threw a punch at my trainer and looked at me and said, no fucking way. 
And I was like, this guy's committed. He can do it. He's got, he gives his heart. And he, yeah. he did, man. He, every day. Turned him into a fighter. Had Victor Ortiz. He got slapped around a lot because that real boxers working with him. Yeah, yeah. But he did it. So, yeah, I, I enjoy the process. I mean, you know, at some point it's good to take a break and really develop your, your other material and stuff. But I don't know, man, you know. If you're on a roll, you're on a roll. Yeah, and it's, I just think it's, for me, for me, it's just, it's just sharpening your knife. Yeah. It's learning, getting better, spending mm. time with the audience, more immediate. Because the world is changing so quickly. Mm. You know, you make movies and you make them for the audience. And sometimes, you know, the, I just learned about, uh, what, what's the other thing? Just Vine? Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. so I'm, I got to get caught up. Um, I have a 22-year-old son who's obviously been leaving things out. He hasn't been telling me all the new stuff. <laughs> it must be a reason. But, um, you know, so it's like it's changing in the, in the, in the, um, in the, the pulse changes so quickly. And then sometimes it's good to just, you know, stay on it. How many weeks prep are you going to give yourself for Magnificent Seven? I got some time. I mean, I'm literally uh, I'm editing uh, uh, Southpaw. The trick with that one is that Harvey Weinstein would like it out by December, or at least for a couple theaters, which is kind of hardcore. Yeah. But I, I edit while I'm shooting. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so that's what I spend my uh, um, my weekends doing, and my editor works all week. So it's a possibility, maybe. Um, depends on how well it's coming together. And then uh, uh, Mac 7, I literally start soft prep now, scouting, casting, designing, things like that. So I'll have a little more time on that one. So yeah. you you uh, you have Denzel. Yeah, I have Denzel. I assume that he's one of the seven. I'm kind of he guessing. Is, he's the number one. <laughs> he's the number one. Yeah, he's so seven he's, people. Uh, yeah, he could, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know? He'd be Eddie Murphy. And do them all, <laughs> you know. That'd be amazing. Are uh, you? Are you? I know you're not going to give us any names right now, but are you looking to, I guess, replicate the original movie, which had huge stars, and then mm-hmm. peppered out the the rest of the seven with, you know, the likes of Brad Dexter and Horace mm-hmm. Buchholz, you know, really good character actors. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're looking to do, or are you looking for seven big names? No, not definitely on one seven big names. Uh, I'm just looking to. You know, um, maybe there'll be one or two other guys, like, you know, like the Steve McQueens and all those guys, um, you know, uh, Charles Bronson type. Mm. But mainly, I, I think it's about just great actors, just great actors, because Denzel's a, an amazing actor, and um, that, I don't think you need seven star. I mean, Expendables does that kind of thing. Mm. I don't want to do that. I just want to get great actors, you know, um, from wherever they are in the world and uh, who, have, who have a passion for this. And it's a proper old school western. Is that what you're going for? Oh, yeah. Are you gonna shoot on film? Yeah, anamorphic, wow. IMAX, widescreen, <laughs> all of it. Monument Valley. All of it, man. <laughs> all, of it. all of it, man. Yeah, you know, I mean, why not, right? I mean, it's it's. It, there's no reason uh, for us to stop making um, movies about about different things. It's almost like you know, I'm really happy that uh, MGM is going to do it because. You know, sometimes people get live in a bubble and they just kind of go, ah, oh, we only make these kind of movies. You're like, why would you do that? You know mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's stories to tell about um, uh, different environments, different times in our lives, and we haven't seen a, a great Western. Uh, when was the last time you saw a, a great Western? True yeah. Grit, probably, 2010. <clears throat> yeah, True Grit's probably yeah. the only one, but, I mean, was but how many years ago was that? Yeah, just a few years and ago. It did, and it, it did really yeah. well. So, yeah. you know, why would you stop? Yeah. Why, why would you not make another one? How many superhero movies have you made so far? I mean, <laughs> really, over Precisely. and over and over. Uh, we'll let you go, Antoine. I just want to ask one very, very last question. You you did incorporate the classic Equalizer theme tune into your version <laughs> of the Equalizer. Right. But as you said, Magnificent Seven has one of the great theme tunes. Have you yeah. any plans what you might want to do with that now? Mm, no, I don't. I don't really. I mean, I wouldn't mind. I'm actually, I want to reach out to Marconi. Uh, you know, I, I, I love the Sergio Leone era. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a way to blend things nowadays, you know what I mean, to do something really cool that, that gives a, an, a, 
a nod to that, but then make it contemporary. Yeah. The Equalizer, I mean, you know, Harry Gregson Williams, who's British, uh, English, uh, great composer, he did The Equalizer. And, you know, we just wanted to have our own theme. I think, you know, this generation deserves its own theme, you know, so instead of going through the past, what what's going to be the theme now that somebody else will make later, then they'll, they'll throw minds out. <laughs> you know, they'll go do theirs, you know. Moving forward, man. Indeed. indeed. Yeah. Wish all the best. Thank Antoine, you, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, man. Good Cheers. talking to you guys, man. It's time now for the reviews. Let's start with the equalizer. Well, look, the thing is, I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I my expectation levels were reasonably low. Uh-huh. I remember the Iwa Wuwa Edward Woodward equalizer a little bit as a kid when you when you were supposed to go to bed and it was on late and you'd sit there and it was not all that brilliant. All I remember is the uh, the title sequence. It, it, Literally, yeah, it's that's him, him in an alleyway. And he's like in a puddle and there's yeah. a car. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's all I it. can remember. <laughs> and this is a similar scenario. I'm not going to lie to you. I remember there's a hardware, a big hardware, like a B&Q. I remember Denzel fighting Martin Shocker. How do you say his name? Uh, I say Shockass. He probably says it a completely different way. But I'm right. In America, it'd be Shockass. Mm. Um, Martin Shockass is a Russian... He's kind of like... He's the factotum, should we say, a violent kind of fix-it guy for a Russian, a Russian oligarch type, a criminal mastermind who's, mm. who's for most of the movie out of sight, over the horizon, mm. and uh, through a congruence of events, which our reviewer Kim Newman has has rightly kind of paralleled with with uh, Taxi Driver, Denzel Washington's character, who's got a shady sort of special ops background, um, falls in with Chloe Grace Moretz's kind of cool girl and she is in the pay of one of Martin Shokas's kind of henchmen basically and uh, she comes to some violence at his hands Denzel's kind of more paternal than Travis Bickle's sort of outlook gets him involved he doesn't want to he wants to hold the stuff back but he can't help himself he has this kind of inner Ronin light ability and it gets him into a, a very what you'd think is a lethal situation he's in a room in a nightclub upstairs out of sight out of mind dealing with about nine heavily tattooed, heavily armed Russians. But what he has, his secret weapon, is the fact that he's basically a superhero. (laughs) (laughs) No one knows that, and there's no reason why he's a superhero, but he can kind of slow time, calculate things. All these kind of like tricksy devices that Antoine Fuqua kind of employs Mm. to, to show his kind of de facto powers enables him to kill all these people. And so that's early on in the movie. I don't want to give too much away because it's a little plotty. Um, I'm sensing though that but, uh, that comparison to the taxi driver to, to the taxi driver Robert De Niro is the, the taxi, taxi driver. driver. Well, mate, are you a taxi driver? <laughs> no, it's Hal. Hi, Hal. Hi. Oh, what are you it's doing the back there, to the space station, mate? Um, <laughs> that's the only com- that's the only time these movies would be compared. Yes. In Ta- what, taxi part. Driver 2001 of the Equalizer, <laughs> the classic triple bill. Um, <laughs> At the end of the movie, Denzel becomes a star child and saves <laughs> Grace Moretz. Yeah, well, you say that, but he sort of does. He sort of does. Chloe Grace's, Grace Moretz's character, if you're a Chloe Grace Moretz fan, should should point out that she 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 kind of abruptly disappears from the film. And but she's the she's the kind of the training wheels that Denzel takes off to become what he was before a violent reprisalist. He is the equalizer. The He's tougher than than yeah, kind of the reprisalizer. And Martin Shawkus is a kind of a special ops Reese Shearsmith in this movie. <laughs> I, I couldn't get Reese Shearsmith out of my mind watching him, but I really liked him. He's got this kind of he's got this kind of gluey charisma, and um, he he and Denzel together are very very watchable. Right. They are the tw- they are the twin kind of uh, pillars that make that keep this from being ridiculous. Mm. Um, so I watched it and I quite enjoyed it. We gave it three stars. I would go along with that. But two weeks later, 
it's, it's Edward Woodward in a puddle next to a car in my mind at the same time, it's got a gardening centre, special ops for Shearsmith. It's hard not to make a case for this being the greatest movie ever made. Yeah. It's got... Yeah, well... <laughs> I'd like to think I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but, three, three you stars. Know, three stars. Three stars. It's just over two hours of mindless Friday night nonsense. Three stars think- worth, I would say. I think other reviewers are going to be pretty hard on it, but actually, it has some pleasures, and I think Denzel is very, very watchable, mm. always. Absolutely. Three stars in for the equaliser, which, as we always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. Uh, up next is Maps to the Stars, which is the uh, new David Cronenberg film. It's part Hollywood satire, it's part psychodrama, in which an all-star cast, including John Cusack, Julianne Moore, Robert Pattinson and Mia Fasikowska, and negotiate the perils and pitfalls of Tinseltown. Phil, I'm going to come to you again. Yeah, please do. I will. I will. That. Yeah. Well, I really like David Cronenberg. Um, I came to him a little late because I didn't really go through, I didn't really experience his, probably as you did, mm. Chris, his body horror phase first at the time. Yeah, but I'm, I'm one of those guys is going, why don't you make the old gory stuff again? Mm. He's gone, it's sort of body horror of the mind, really. There's a weird mm. ickiness to his recent films, excluding, say, A Dangerous Method. And I think this is his best since probably a history of violence. Um, it's very funny. It's it's not a, it's a comedy, but it's not a kind of a laugh out loud comedy. But there's something about Cronenberg. He kind of he brings the humour in really weird, perverse, backdoor kind of ways. He has gone. He's at pains to say this isn't supposed to be the player. It's not supposed to be a straight Hollywood satire. But it is obviously set in, in Hollywood. It follows a Hollywood family: the Vices, the Weisses, the Weeses whatever you want to call them. And the, the clan involves John Cusack, who's kind of a life guru. His wife, who is played by Olivia, Olivia Williams, Williams yeah. ex of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and their son, Benji Weiss, who's who's played by Evan Bird, um, who's a newcomer to me and uh, really, really fantastic in a kind of a um, Justin Biebery, bratish kind of uh, child star. Yeah. Um, but the standout in this film is Julianne Moore, who's, I think, getting better and better with each year that goes by and each role that goes by um, she plays a sort of she's a kind of a Betty Davis type character this this film is sort of the exact midway point between what happened to Baby Jane and Entourage I would say there's lots of really funny really dark stuff in it mm. it's a ghost story I think is what what Cronenberg and Bruce Wagner the writer and novelist wanted to bring to this is that this idea of the past catching up with uh, Julianne Moore's character her mother died in a fire she was a movie star Julianne Moore wants to play her, the part her mother made famous in a remake mm. of uh, of um, this movie from the from the black and white era so it cuts back and forth across those sort of ghostly remembrances of the past and um, I, I really liked it we gave it four stars Again, it's Cronenberg. Not everyone's mm. going to like it. It's like a big pot of Marmite with a fly in it. It is. It, it's a. It's a like all Cronenberg films, a bit cold, a bit detached. You get a sense that they're not so much characters as viruses in a petri dish, and he's a scientist studying them from afar. Having said that, I think it's a return to form for him. I was very cold in a dangerous method. I loathed Cosmopolis, which is unusual for me with oh, Cronenberg. Unfair. I really did. But this is this is a, yeah, this is very very good. I really enjoyed this one. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I think that's a really good analogy. He, there is a detachment. I don't think he, he's not someone that doesn't care about his characters, but yeah, they're sort of, sometimes they're ciphers for other ideas, perhaps, mm. should we say. Um, and you're right, you don't go and watch a Cronenberg film for the kind of, for the... Um, yeah, I was going to say the kind of Richard Curtis yeah. warm and fuzzies, because yeah. that's not going to be your great first date movie, I wouldn't have said. Mm. But it might be a great 
tenth date movie with someone with an equally, <laughs> equally twisted sense of humour. That's a good performance as well. Um, uh, Robert Pattinson's on the periphery of the action. He's good. Yeah, he's good. But I think this movie belongs as much. We haven't really mentioned Mia Fazakaska, uh, who plays. It's hard to really talk about her character without giving too much away, but she's very, very good as a damaged young soul who comes to Hollywood um, looking for payback, shall we say. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Cusack's good, but yeah, it's Julianne Moore's film. Uh, there's been talk of a Best Actress campaign uh, around her for this movie. And she's very good, you know. I hope if she does win the Best Actress and they show the clip before when they announce the nominations on the night, they show the clip of her on the loo acting to perform in the scene whilst <laughs> farting. <laughs> Just in the midst of all of the really emotional kind of like clip Indeed. sequence, that would be a that would be a Cronenbergy touch for the night. Uh, four stars then for Maps to the Stars. Uh, so Maps to the Stars may well be film of the week, but I think it's going to fie for that title with Pavel Pavlikovsky's latest, which is Ida. Phil, again, you've seen this one. Yeah, it'll vie for screens with 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 that film certainly because it apply it will probably appeal to a similar sort of audience. Yeah, again, not going to be everyone's cup of tea. It's a Polish film in black and white set in the 60s the communist era um, we often sit here and talk about films failing the Bechdel test this film gets I would say 100% it's got two great female characters Anna who is a very young nun who is basically instructed to go and meet her relative Wanda um, Wanda used to be quite senior in the sort of communist apparatus is now kind of fallen on harder times she is a great great character she's salty she's funny she drinks heavily she says ridiculous outrageous things she doesn't give a shit it's a kind of if you can imagine Bellatar's scent of a woman that's what this film is the two of them go <laughs> the, 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 the two of them go on a road trip and find out basically about <laughs> Ida's parents and her history in the war she turns out she's actually sorry Anna rather the nun turns out that she's actually called Ida she's of Jewish um, heritage her parents she discovers their fate from the, the Holocaust in Wanda's company and also finds out a lot of things about herself and about life um, in the course of what's actually a fairly economically timed but considerately paced movie it's not a fast pace, he does a lot of language shots the photography's beautiful and two great performances um, I want to name check them but it's too early in the morning to get my mouth around a word that begins in TRZ I, I, I got a Trez Bukowska, I think, is the name of the girl who plays the woman who plays Anna. Sounds good to me. And Agata Kolejka is probably not how you pronounce the woman who plays Wanda. And the two of them are both great, and I really enjoy this movie. Four stars. If you are of Polish extraction, uh, apologize. For the, yeah, sorry, <laughs> we'd like to apologize for trampling <laughs> over the pronunciation there. Please do send us in the correct pronunciation of those names. Uh, but four stars, yes, for Ida uh, Pawlikowski. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's his best. I mean, he he oh, introduced best. Emily. No, I was going to say his best since probably I don't know. Well, certainly for a long time. Um, he tragically his wife died not that long ago, and and he made um, Woman in the Fourth with Kristen Scott Thomas in Paris, which is not his finest moment. Mm. But he introduced Emily Blunt in My Summer of Love a few years ago, and and caught the eye with that. And I think this one is gonna. Uh, it just feels like his. You know, he's found himself again as a filmmaker. Uh, okay, let's move on to the last one we're going to dissect in some depth this week, which is it's what we did on our holiday, uh, which stars the last of this week's guests. Do stick, stay tuned for Rosamund Pike, uh, along with David Tennant and Billy Connolly. Hells yeah, bells. that's right. So this comes from the guys who wrote Outnumbered, uh, Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And so you won't be surprised to know it sort of shares a little bit of kind of that tone. It shares a little bit of that sort of a similar setup, I guess. So it's a, a comedy about a family. Uh, uh, 
Pike and Tennant play a couple who are on the verge of splitting up. Um, we are told by one of their children that Daddy had an affair with a one foot, uh, a Paralympic athlete with one foot, or words to that effect. But they nevertheless decide to put a brave face on it and take the three kids up to uh, Grandad's birthday, uh, Grandad being played by Billy Connolly. It's his 75th uh the other son is planning a uh, big do mostly for his own ends rather than his, his father's who couldn't care less. So there's a lot of family politics going on there. Um, and then things happen that mean the kids spend a lot of time with their ailing grandfather. Uh, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of laughs here. Uh, there's a lot of quite sweet comedy. Uh, the kids are generally pretty good, although you can kind of tell sometimes that they were told to improvise while the adults are very much sticking to a script. You know, it's a, there's there's little bits of mm. tonal shift. That's very much the outnumbered model, isn't it? I guess it is, yeah. So maybe that's maybe that's why. But it's, you know, it, it has moments where it works brilliantly and moments where it's, it's less successful, I think it's fair to say. And there are plot developments, I'm not going to go into too much, that sit very oddly with that setup. There are moments this film goes in, in a direction that you maybe will not expect uh, from the way it's framed. And that doesn't, sit terribly well so it kind of brings it back to something slightly warmer and fuzzier for the ending but given what's happened in the middle that feels a little odd so anyway we give it three stars lots of good stuff but but maybe not quite a home run indeed uh, three stars then for what we did on our holiday uh, uh, honourable mention should go to I Origins which is the latest from Mike Cahill and Britt Marlene uh, and stars uh, Michael Pitt it's a very very touching romantic drama with Big, big sci-fi ideas. I'm not sure how many cinemas that's going to be in, though, but we gave it four stars. So do check it out, especially if you liked Another Earth. Yeah, his previous one. Same sort of emotional reach and big, big ideas. So do check that one out as well. And also out this week is the British horror uh, Honeymoon, which got three stars. So if you fancy a bit of a scare... It's got some for you, so go and check that out as well. Now, normally, this is the part where I say, and that's it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for more of them. But not this week, because this week we have a third guest. She is the star, as we were just saying, of what we did on our holiday. But she's also the title character in David Fincher's Gone Girl, uh, which is out next week. She doesn't play Gone Girl. She doesn't play Gone Girl. It's not a superhero (laughs) thing. She's uh, Amy Dunn in that movie, uh, which is out next week, October 3rd. And that's the juiciest role of her career to date, which is no mean feat, given that she bursts under her screens as a Bond girl slash villain in Die Another Day. And it's along the way, accrued the likes of The World's End. And yes, Jack Reacher. We don't just throw this shit together. (laughs) Can't do. On her CV, she is, of course, Rosamund Pike. And she was talking to Helen and Dan. Uh, Just before we start with uh, Rosamund Pike, we should possibly make a couple of things clear. First of all, um, if any of you know Gone Girl, you will know that she is uh, the person who goes missing and that, you know, she appears in flashbacks and so on through the the story. But you may not want to know anything more than that. And if that's the case, you probably want to skip the next nine and a half minutes of the podcast. Come back to it once you've seen Gone Girl. If you've read the book, you can safely, obviously, keep listening. If you're spoiler sensitive, I'd maybe just be a little bit careful because Amy Dunn is a complicated character and Rosamund Pike does deal with some of that complication. So you may not want to know what she has to tell you. Otherwise, enjoy. Rosamund Pike, Hi. welcome to the podcast. <laughs> with Gone Girl, we've been we've been hearing from David already that people are sort of divided when they're watching it into Team Nick and Team Amy. Are you then the you know the headmistress or the the captain of Team Amy? Well, I, somebody else told me this in an interview this morning. They said, "Oh, it's been you know the the bloggers. The, there's a, there's a it's it's the presence of Team Nick and Team Amy is very present on the on on the web." Um, you just you just don't think like that when you're when you're <laughs> making a film or playing a character. It's like someone asking you whether you like your character. I think once you reach 
the point of understanding your character. It sort of goes beyond like or dislike. You know, I think understanding sort of, it's it's just something different. It's, mm. You don't really analyse beyond that. You mm. just know who they are and you're sort of with them. You're, you, you, go, you go with them. Um, sometimes playing Amy made me feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it was exhilarating. Yeah. Um, that was the sort of that was the, that was the joy of it. I just I just find it fascinating that we could be in any way comparing Gone Girl to you know Twilight or something with its team Edward and <laughs> Team Jake. You know, yeah, that's a good point. Here. That's a good point. But I mean, anything that gets people you know talking is is good. I mean, there's a, you know there's also there's a sort of clear again a stake driven through the audience. You know, yeah. I think you know women sort of sit back, men sort of crane forward, <laughs> and you know that's another point. I mean, David in his films is divisive in nature. I think that's the that's the that's the genius of his films. He's provocative and he never lets you sort of rest easy in what you're supposed to be thinking yeah. because ultimately of course there's nothing you're supposed to be thinking he just wants you to go on a ride so you know people would come to set and would say to him oh, I've seen the dailies they're really funny to be met with total silence from Mr Fincher and uh and they say well are they they were supposed to be funny weren't they <laughs> total silence from mr fincher so you know he just he just he just loves to let people sort of squirm in a stew of their own making um and you sort of see it again and again you can never you just can't win he'll always whatever you say he'll turn it on its head you know if i said i'm you know i like the film or eventually when i kind of came around and said i think i like it he said well we know you need therapy <laughs> you know <it's> <laughs> sort of, <laughs> that's probably everybody else will think after they've seen the film as well <laughs> Well, you mentioned actually just now understanding Amy. Yes. Can you really? I can. I think. Wow. Yeah. I think I can understand her. I mean, I think that's what's exciting. You know, that's what. Um, you know, I was speaking to a friend, and I said, I said, "What?" I said, "What do I say when people say, how do you play Amy?'" And they said, "Oh, just tell them you phoned it in." <laughs> <laughs> so, so, if I have the balls, I'll do that in New York. I'll just <laughs> on, on a talk show. I'll just let everyone guess. But I think you, you know, as an actor, you're. If you're willing to sort of go one place, why aren't you willing to go another place? You know, if you're willing to sort of let your romantic side out there and, you know, why can't you let your sort of, you know, more toxic, rageful side out there as well? I mean, that's that's sort of part of the job, I think. It doesn't mean that that's who you are at that moment. It just means that, you know, your whole panoply of emotions that you've had since you were sort of birthed to whatever age you are now, it's all there for the taking if you if you want to take it. Um and then it's always, it's never, you know, you're never, you very rarely get to sort of play something and put it into the same situation as you experience in your real life. Yeah. But you can, you can sort of take a feeling and, you know, push it through another gate, as it were. It's funny because there's, I mean, there's the, the section in the book that I think everybody connects with to Amy, which is the, the sort of the cool girl description where she talks about she's a cool girl and, and what that is. And that's something that I, I, you know, I've seen lots of blogs written about that <laughs> section in the book. It's only about a paragraph, I think. But, you know, people really connect with that. And then you i think people stay connected to her for a longer right. time than they're probably comfortable with that's a very good point that's a very good point i was teasing the mtv um interviewer who came to interview me today because she was she was dressed this way i said oh i said you're it's very cool i said you're a cool girl and she said well that's what i thought when i <laughs> you know read the you read the book i was like is this what i do do i just pretend to be someone else for a living and then she's like maybe i do um <laughs> And I think, you know, that we live in this culture right now that is encouraging us to sort of try on, you know, to shapeshift and try on mm. different personalities. You know, we're, we're invited to edit our lives, to incite the envy of others on Facebook and make our lives look cooler and, you know, more filled with, you know, 
the best nights out ever mm. than everybody else's and um and it's into that sort of climate that Gillian Flynn puts Nick and Amy's relationship mm. you know they meet in New York they meet at a hipster party um downtown I mean Amy's not a hipster and she's but she's able to perform that if the situation demands it and so in that respect Amy's an actress and then that becomes very interesting for an actress to play um <laughs> you know she's able to and there's you know on, and Gillian's clever because when she articulates this idea of the cool girl the way that you know there's no such thing as there's no defining character for a cool girl she is whoever um a certain man needs her to be yeah. you know if he's a hipster artist then you know she'll love sort of drinking you know rare batch sort of beers and and um, and going to sort of out of the way shows in warehouses. sort of disused warehouses yeah and if she's you know he's a if he's a um i don't know a petrol head you know she'll suddenly get into vintage cars or whatever but um Gillian also points out that that can be fun and there's no there's no way that that's in all, in it, in itself sinister it's it's perhaps dishonest but it's dishonesty and flirtation and mm. such so, so, such a bad thing but obviously in the case of Nick and Amy it's it's you're you're dealing also with two very narcissistic personalities who have sort of high expectations i suppose and when those expectations are not met then things start to go wrong. You know, the relationship's good as long as everyone's doing their, playing their part. Mm. Mm. Um, and how was Ben then to collaborate with on this? Because you've um, had some interesting scenes together. Yeah, we do. Perfect yeah. narcissistic male. No, no, he's yeah. not at all. I mean, the interesting, <laughs> thing about, the interesting thing about Ben is he's, he's having this sort of amazing moment where he's, you know, you're, and you're around that confidence that's coming from him sort of riding this wave of his career of... Yeah. You know, both as a director and an actor, but there's no arrogance going with it. Mm. He's he's incredibly likable and very funny. You probably met him. He is very yeah. funny, and and I think I think perhaps the public imagination doesn't accommodate <laughs> very very funny Ben Affleck. They don't really know about that because he hasn't got to. He hasn't really got to be that funny in his films. I don't think, and he is. He's I mean, his his impressions are just you know he'd meet he'd start sort of doing an impression of you within sort of minutes of meeting you. It's 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 very it's very good. Um, and I think, you know, he has a very wry sense of who he is and where what his position is in in the film industry and in the media. And so to play a character who is besieged by the media and, you know, tossed and turned and sort of liked, disliked, loved, loathed, he's got some stuff to draw on in his own life. And I think he kind of relished that, actually, mm. or at least was prepared to open that up. Yeah. Are you looking forward to seeing him as Batman then? Well, I sort of felt oh, he was becoming Batman. Yeah. I mean, did you not see how he sort of started to burst out of his shirts? Yeah. By the end of the <laughs> it was just me. I just thought, is he or not? Oh, okay, okay. I think I sort of saw him sort of morphing into Batman as we as we carried on filming. But he's, um, got, he's got a villainous chin. A villainous chin, indeed. So, I mean, he's got the perfect, the, the killer smile and the villainous chin. Villainous chin, it's quite hard to say. Yeah. He has got the perfect face for Nick Dunn. I mean, it's, I mean, I suppose a good actor has a face that can sort of you know, be morphed into and you can say, Oh yes, well it's the perfect face for that and then it's suddenly the perfect face for something completely different. No, I'm I'm been intrigued to see. I'm very intrigued to see Batman. See his Batman when it comes out. So were there a lot of funny people then on set? You sort of you know, 'cause it's Well not, with Neil and Tyler yeah, well, Perry thinking, and you know, Neil Patrick Harris especially. But I think these guys were relishing the chance of not to be funny. Mm. I think sometimes you know, it's just like what I did Hector in the Search for Happiness with Simon Pegg and I think he 
you know, he sort of relished the chance not to have to be funny. Mm. Um, and it's always hard to convince an audience that that's a good idea because, you know, when they've sort of become so used to seeing you be, you know, make them laugh and they sort of feel you're, you're, you're there and you will guarantee them laughs and they're a bit indignant when you don't. Mm. I mean, God, Tyler Perry and Neil were so damn professional. They were just... Neil was one of the loveliest people I've ever had the chance to work with. He just, we had a really, really good time. You know, the, the technicality involved in shooting some of those scenes, there's a lot of preparation goes into it. And, you know, we had to be, we were under time pressure on the day. We had to make sure everything went like clockwork um, for reasons that will become apparent. And um, so Neil and I, we when we figured out what we were going to do, and obviously, you know, when you know you're in a, probably in an R-rated movie, you've got the sort of, you know, the naughty compulsion to see how corrupt and strange you can sort of make things. And, um, and then David left us alone to rehearse it just to make sure that we had everything sort of under control and uh, yeah. Rosamund Pike thank you so thank much thank you thank you and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more formulated fun when we'll be joined by Luke Evans star of Dracula Untold no no okay less and less yeah well alright and Sam Neill Sam hey. Neill who will be here talking about the return of Peaky Blinders and yes Event Horizon do you say do you say I wasn't around for the interview I was so gutted I know. so gutted not to be here the great Dr. William Weir was in this very chair but at least you'll be able to do your Northern Irish voice when, when he's on because he was of course born in Tyrone he, he was indeed born in Oma yes a very first interview I ever did for Emperor Magazine with Sam Neill Ah, it was good so lovely start. it's all been downhill from there it has all been downhill I said to him at the end I said, I, I said oh, Sam I'm just curious to know whether you get back to Northern Ireland you know what you know no, not really. Okay, great. <laughs> um, no, he's a lovely guy. Lovely guy. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. I'm off to lobby hard for Jason Orange to join our pod team. I think he'd bring something invaluable to it. I'm not quite sure what, but it'll be fun finding out. Uh, you're always welcome here, Jason. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>